Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On February 15th, 1930... A woman took her seat in a vast and beautiful chamber in Ottawa, where every other seat was filled with men. For 60 years, there had only been men, and although some were happy with her presence and to see change, others, not so much. Tradition was important to them, and this was a major shift. The woman at the center of this commotion had seemingly been plucked out of nowhere and thrust into the spotlight. Some of the men knew of her, She was well known in Ottawa for her volunteer efforts. Her father had sat in this very chamber, and her husband was a Liberal Member of Parliament at one time. Outside of the capital, though, nobody knew her name. But they were about to. Because Corrine Wilson was about to take her seat in the Canadian Senate, as her father once did, and become the first female Canadian Senator in Canadian history. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. Canada became a country on July 1, 1867, and that same day, the Canadian Senate was formed. Modelled after the British House of Lords, the Canadian Senate is the upper house of our government, with members appointed by the Governor-General on the advice of the Prime Minister. Together with the Crown and the House of Commons, they make up the Canadian government. Within our government, the House of Commons is the dominant chamber, which is where the democratically elected body debates and votes on legislation. When an act is passed in Parliament, it moves on to the Senate, where it is again voted on, and it can fail there, but that is rare. In fact, most people don't even think about the Senate, except when there's a scandal usually surrounding expenses. Sir John A. Macdonald believed that the House of Commons represented the population of Canada, while the Senate represented the regions of the country, and called it the body of sober second thought that would curb the democratic excesses of the House of Commons. When the Senate was first formed in 1867, it had 72 seats, 24 each representing Ontario and Quebec, and 12 each for Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. As provinces were added, new seats were added. Manitoba was the next one with two seats, followed by British Columbia with three seats. By 1915, there were 96 seats in the Senate, a number that would not change again until 1949 when Newfoundland joined Canada, and the number increased to 102. 
Since 1999, there have been 105 seats in the Senate through changes to the population of some provinces and the addition of Nunavut. For the first 63 years of Canada's history, Senate seats were only occupied by men. Then everything changed after five women made the case that women were persons under the law and therefore qualified to sit in the Senate. Irene Parlby, Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Louise McKinney, and Henrietta Edwards tested the legal definition of personhood, and if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you'll remember that I did an episode on Henrietta earlier this year and covered some of the story there. Today, these five women are known as the Famous Five. However, the path for women into the Senate began 11 years earlier in 1919 when Emily Murphy was chosen by the Federated Women's Institutes of Canada to stand as a candidate for the Canadian Senate. Now, to put that into context, at this point, women could vote in most Canadian provinces and in federal elections. So to test the possibility of sitting in the Senate, Emily put her name forward to the then Prime Minister, Sir Robert Borden. Now, Borden stated he was willing to give her his support, but he legally could not do it because the 1876 British common law ruled that women were only eligible for pains and penalties, not rights and privileges. At the time, British law was Canadian law, as we were still a dominion of the empire. Now, not wanting to take no for an answer, Murphy spent the next eight years seeking more clarification on how women were regarded under the British North America Act of 1867 and what needed to change so women could sit in the Senate. Enlisting the help of four other women, the famous five submitted their petition on August 27, 1927, and asked the federal government to refer the issue to the Supreme Court of Canada. The question was simple. Does the word persons in Section 24 of the British North America Act of 1867 include female persons? On March 14, 1928, the Supreme Court heard the case. And on April 24th, all five justices ruled that qualified persons under Section 24 did not include women. Now, there's a common misconception that the Supreme Court held the decision that women were not persons. In fact, the majority of the Supreme Court stated that there was no doubt that the word persons when standing alone included women. However, the formal judgment of the court was, quote, understood to mean, are women eligible for appointment to the Senate of Canada? The question is answered in the negative. Now, at the time, the Supreme Court of Canada was not the court of last resort for Canadians. Because Canada was still a dominion, the women were able to take their case to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London, England, and on October 18, 1929, the Lord Chancellor, Lord Sankey, ruled that the meaning of qualified persons could be read to include women. It was a victory for the famous five. With that decision, women could now sit in the Senate of Canada, which brings us to today's story. Now, Emily Murphy seemed like the most logical choice as the first woman to sit in the Senate because of her long history with the women's suffrage movement. After all, she's the one that carved out the legal path to changing the rules for the Senate. Then there was Nellie McClung, the writer and activist who was instrumental in getting women in Manitoba the vote and becoming the first province to do so. But the first woman in the Canadian Senate wasn't Murphy, or McClung, or any of the famous five. Instead, the first woman would be well-known in political circles in Ottawa, and as you've guessed, her name was Corrine Wilson. Born into a wealthy and influential family in Montreal on February 4, 1885, she was one of nine children. 
Her parents, June and Robert McKay, were very well connected with the political elite. Her father was a friend of the future Prime Minister, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, and would himself sit in the Canadian Senate from 1901 to 1916. In 1870, a decade and a half before Corrine was born, Robert founded the McKay Institute for the Deaf due to his commitment to public service. And overall, the house was loving but strict and formal. This caused Corrine to grow up shy and reserved with a strong sense of warmth and compassion for others. As a father, Robert impressed on his children to follow his example to have a lucrative career and an active social life of helping others. Corrine said, Father felt that the girls should do something purposeful, study, become something, go beyond the fashion magazines. Her mother June was of Scottish and French-Canadian descent and the daughter of a prominent lumber baron in Quebec. And according to Corrine later in life, her upbringing was very privileged with nurses, child specialists, tutors, music teachers and governesses. Corrine attended finishing school in Montreal at the Trafalgar Institute, but despite her good grades, she decided not to pursue higher education. At the time, it was generally not acceptable for women of the upper class to pursue education because it was expected they would marry into a prominent family and begin to have families of their own. And that is exactly what Corrine did. In 1905, while attending a state ball in Ottawa, Zoe Laurier, the wife of Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier, introduced Corrine to Norman Wilson. Norman Wilson was a member of Parliament from 1904 to 1908, and in 1909, the couple married. Over the next 10 years, they had eight children, five girls and three boys. The couple initially lived in Rockland, Ontario, near Ottawa, where they would be part of the English-speaking minority. Corrine, however, honed her French while living there and followed her father's advice for public service by being active in the church and the Red Cross, and during the First World War, she knitted clothes for soldiers overseas. For the most part, during the first decade of marriage, Corrine focused on keeping a home and raising the couple's children. She wrote, My marriage brought me great happiness but deprived me of practically all outside companionship and for 10 years I devoted myself exclusively to the management of three houses and the care of my children. As her children aged and became more self-reliant, Corrine focused on volunteer work, especially after the family moved to Ottawa in 1918. She helped underprivileged children, refugees and the poor. And her commitment to refugees and the poor could have been inspired by her own family, who were cleared out of the Scottish Highlands by the British government in the 1810s, and then eventually made their way to Canada. She also believed that the public demands of a woman were an extension of maternal responsibility and the moral superiority of women. In 1921, she became the co-president of the Eastern Ontario Liberal Association. The following year, she founded the Ottawa Women's Liberal Club. And as women gained the right to vote, Corrine worked to get more women involved in politics and she co-founded the 20th Century Liberal Association and the National Federation of Liberal Women of Canada. Corrine, however, was never involved in the women's suffrage movement in Canada like the famous five were. Now it's important to note that she didn't become active in volunteer work and activism until after the First World War, and by that point, women could vote in half of the provincial elections and in federal elections. Well, white women at least. By 1922, women could vote in every province in Canada except Quebec, and that didn't happen until 1940. Nonetheless, on February 15, 1930, only four months after the judgment on the person's case was handed down, Corrine Wilson was appointed to the Canadian Senate. 
Now this appointment surprised many because Emily Murphy seemed like the obvious choice. She was famous across Canada and the first female magistrate in Canadian history and like I said earlier, started the path to the Senate. The problem was, Murphy was a conservative. Like today, partisan rules politics. Liberal Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King wanted to ensure that his party held power in the Senate and he would not appoint a conservative to that post. Like I said earlier, the Senate can block legislation from being passed, so you always want to have the numbers on your side. As a result, he gave the honour to a lifelong Liberal from a Liberal family, Corrine Wilson. On February 11, 1930, he wrote in his diary, We came to agreement on Mrs. Norman Wilson as the first woman senator to be appointed. She has taken a leading part among the women, speaks English and French, and is in a position to help the party and will was a close friend of Lady Laurier, is a lady, and therefore be less jealousy of her than any other person. Now a quick side note, although King was Corrine's family friend, over time their relationship fractured and eventually there was no love lost between the two. Before that happened though, he appointed her for the Senate seat and like others, she was shocked about it and initially she was reluctant, but accepted in the end. And her appointment faced plenty of opposition from those who wanted Murphy instead, from those who wanted a French-Canadian, from those who were unhappy she was a mother, and from those who were just angry that a woman had been appointed at all. Emily Murphy was vocal of her opposition, and she said to the Ottawa Evening Journal, quote, Mrs. Wilson is the very antithesis of the short-haired reformer, that unlovely type which talks of Freud in the latest novel and poses an intellectual. She is of the much more appealing and competent kind to make a success of taking care of a home and family before meddling with and, and trying to make a success of everything else. Regardless, Corrine Wilson would become the first woman to take that seat in the Senate. And although she had been appointed to the Senate by Liberal Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King, by the time she was sworn in, the federal election had come and gone, and the Liberals lost. So, as a result, it was Conservative Prime Minister R.B. Bennett who swore her in. Corrine was the first woman after 63 years of men in the Senate, and some of her colleagues did not want her there. Her appointment brought a lot of attention to the Senate though. The Ottawa Citizen stated that interest and enthusiasm was at a high pitch as she arrived at the Senate chamber. Now much of the press focused on what she was going to wear as she was sworn in, rather than her credentials or her unique point of view. Newspapers devoted quite a bit of space to debating if she would wear a glamorous floor-length gown or something that would mute her femininity to blend in with the men. And when she wore a powder blue lace gown with satin shoes holding a bouquet of orchids, she walked into the Senate. The Ottawa Journal wrote, quote, Feminine invasion of Canadian Senate was peacefully consummated today. Prior to this moment, there was a lot of debate about if she would be called Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Norman Wilson, or Senator Wilson. And that was answered when Senate Speaker Hewitt Bostock ruled in front of all the other senators that she would be addressed as the Honorable Senator Corrine Wilson. In her first speech, she spoke in French, stating she would fulfill the responsibilities of her new position without neglecting her domestic duties. She said, quote, I trust that the future will show that while engaged in public affairs, the mother of a family by reason of her maternal instinct will remain the guardian of the home. End quote. Despite the fact she had made history, newspapers often referred to her as Mrs. Norman Wilson rather than her official title as senator. Curie began to refuse interviews as well and said, 
All this publicity overwhelms me. The Honorable Senator Corrine Wilson was progressive and, and favored giving women more rights and independence, and during her time she helped reform divorce legislation and pushed for a national health insurance scheme. She also denounced the Nationalization Act that took Canadian citizenship away from women that married men from other countries. She also made a commitment to meet with anyone from the public that wanted to speak with her. A former private secretary said she never turned anybody away from her office. Prior to becoming a senator, she was relatively unknown, but that quickly changed as she made a name for herself. And as I mentioned before, her friendship with King slowly began to deteriorate as she became more outspoken about things that were important to her. In one diary entry on January 14, 1935, King stated he sat next to her for an event and said, quote, She was the least interesting of persons, repeating herself continually and always on some subject of politics. In 1938, she was appointed as the president of the League of Nations Society of Canada, which at the time was like the United Nations and was created after the First World War to bring peace to the world and prevent future conflict. You don't have to be a history buff to know that that didn't happen. Corrine spoke out publicly against the Munich Agreement, which she saw as just appeasing Hitler, and she did so shortly after William Lyon Mackenzie King made a highly publicized trip to Nazi Germany, where he met with Hitler in the hopes of keeping the peace in Europe. She said in an interview, quote, the new barbarism represented by Germany may now be free to extend to the Black Sea and other continents. Our leaders continue to subscribe to a concept of anarchy which actually permitted the World War of 1914 and which might well have permitted its reputation in the last few hours. Now history proved her right, but at the time she made the statement, she was harshly criticized for her opinion. King wrote in his diary that she was wrong and that British Prime Minister Nevelle Chamberlain had saved civilization by ceding part of Czechoslovakia to Germany with the Munich Agreement. A year later, the Second World War began, and refugees from Europe streamed out of the continent looking for safety, and many were Jewish, and Canada was not a welcoming place. The country denied entry to nearly all Jewish refugees, and the government policy operated on the belief that, quote, none was too many. On June 7, 1939, 907 Jewish refugees arrived on Canadian shores on the MS St. Louis. They were denied entry, and they had no choice but to return to Europe where 254 died in the Holocaust. Now, To put this in perspective, between 1933 and 1945, the United States admitted 200,000 Jewish refugees, and Britain welcomed 70,000. How many did Canada welcome? Well, not even enough to fill a hockey arena. Only 5,000, but a hundred of those are thanks to Senator Corrine Wilson. The Honourable Senator Corrine Wilson wasn't about to let that stop her from helping refugees. Going against government policy, she arranged for 100 Jewish orphans to come to Canada during the war. And it was not much, but at least it was something. Senator Wilson also opposed the internment of Japanese Canadians during the war, which took thousands of Japanese Canadians from BC to camps in the Canadian prairies and the British Columbia interior. Entire families, including Canadian academic, science broadcaster, and environmental activist David Suzuki's, were uprooted, lost their homes, businesses, and savings. Senator Wilson actively campaigned against anti-Semitism throughout her life, and she sat as the chair of the Canadian National Committee on Refugees from 1938 to 1948. The work was tough, though, and involved meeting with cabinet ministers and bureaucrats and speaking across the country to raise awareness and hosting fundraising events. 
William Lyne Mackenzie King wrote in his diary on April 2, 1943 about her efforts, stating, Had a talk with Corrine Wilson about refugees and matters she is interested in. She looks very worn and tired, is killing herself by taking on a lot of foolish speaking. It is vanity. He often wrote about her physical state, stating she was a wreck or that she should be out of public life. A year after her tenure with the Canadian National Committee on Refugees ended, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent appointed Senator Wilson as Canada's first female delegate to the United Nations General Assembly in 1949. France then made her a Knight of the Legion of Honour in 1950 for her work helping refugee children. And in 1955, Senator Wilson made history once again as the first female Deputy Speaker of the Canadian Senate. But as her efforts and career soared personally, she was hit a heavy blow when her husband Norman passed away in 1956. Now, Senator Wilson's work with the Canadian National Committee on Refugees began to create a change towards a more humane immigration policy, and in 1957, Canada welcomed 280,000 immigrants, 37,000 of which were fleeing Hungary after the failed Hungarian Revolution. She tirelessly championed many causes while battling uterine cancer. She was diagnosed in 1960, and over the next two years, her health slowly declined, until on March 3, 1962, the Honourable Senator Corrine Wilson died of a heart attack. She had spent three weeks at the Civic Hospital in Ottawa due to complications from hip fractures, and upon her death, Liberal leader Lester B. Pearson said, quote, Her activities encompassed everything that made for a better Canada. Now, her story is an important one, but there was someone else who also played an important role for women in the Senate. Corrine Wilson was the first woman to sit in the Canadian Senate, but five years later, Iva Fallis became the second. She had been involved in politics since the early 1920s when she became the first president of the Peterborough Conservative Women's Association and advocated that men and women seek to change politics. In 1930, she became a key member of the campaign team that helped R.B. Bennett win the federal election to become Prime Minister, and as repayment, she was appointed to the Senate in 1935, where she remained until her death in 1956. And thanks to women like the famous five, Corrine Wilson and Iva Fallis, the Canadian Senate is not made up of mostly men anymore. On November 11, 2020, the Senate had an equal number of men and women for the first time. On October 2, 2022, women exceeded men for the first time. And as of July 6, 2023, 54% of the sitting members of the Canadian Senate are women. Not bad considering 93 years ago, there was just one, the Honourable Senator Corrine Wilson. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at Corrine Wilson. Next week, we're looking at the We Demand Rally, the first major LGBTQ protest in Canadian history. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Heroines.ca, Convivium, Historical Society of Canada, Wikipedia, Government of Canada, Library and Archives of Canada, York University, Montreal Gazette, Calgary Herald, Regina Leader Post, Owen Sound, Sun Times, and the Ottawa Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. 
and there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.